This program may not be suitable for young children. Welcome to Street Talk Theology with Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. Pastor Dom went from a life of organized crime to federal prison. There, God saved him and set him free. Soon after his release, he attended seminary and received his master's degree and is now the senior pastor of Desert Sky Baptist Church, where he serves with a passion for biblical theology right here in Casa Grande. Now let's join our host, Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. Pastor Dominic Grimaldi here with Street Talk Theology. We take theology and we bring it to the streets. Got another sermon for you. This is an interesting sermon. It's a sermon that concerns Judah and Tamar. It's a break away from the Joseph narrative. It's a very important part of the narrative. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you're blessed by it. Hope you get challenged by it. In Jesus' name. You know, we're continuing in the mighty book of Genesis. Just let me recap a little bit what we went over last week. This is a tough chapter we're going to talk about today. And, and some people, some people like to skip chapter 38 in, 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 in Genesis, but we're going to deal with the text. And I think it's an important text, especially as we talk about hope. But let me just give you a, a synopsis of what we spoke about last, ne- last week, just to keep us up to speed for people who weren't here. Well, last week we spoke about the danger of being products of our own environment. We spoke about Joseph's brothers, remember? They almost became Canaanites in their mindsets and their ideologies. And then we spoke about the favoritism that Jacob showed Joseph. He makes him this special tunic, remember? Um, The coat of many colors, because he was the son of his old age. Also, the son of Rachel, again, was his favorite over Leah. So we we see favoritism. We see capitulation with the culture, right? The brothers almost became Canaanites, so to speak. And this coat also caused envy between his brothers. And they could not, the Bible says they couldn't speak peaceably to Joseph. So we see this, in this family, there's jealousy, strife, and favoritism. No different than today. But not only that, Joseph had these dreams and that caused more envy from the brothers as Joseph declared to them that they would bow down to him, including his father Jacob. And in mob-like fashion, they sold him into slavery. Unbeknownst to them, they were doing exactly what God was ordaining. Again, we are seeing the strange providences of God and we will see them strange providences again this morning. We need to pay attention. So we left Joseph off uh, last week being sold in Potiphar's house, the captain of the guard of the Pharaoh in Egypt. And we got to continue that story next week because there's a, there's a, there's a kind of an interlude that we have to speak about in Genesis 38. Because the biblical author is going to take us on a journey to Canaan where Judah is going to go there for all the wrong reasons. But it's an important narrative connection. It's really important. I want us to see this. It will challenge us on how easy it is for us to get caught up in the temporal aspects of this world, but how God is able to turn those events around for our good and his glory. Now, in order for us to set context here, who's the author of Genesis? 
Moses. We know the spirit, but Moses is. So I want to set context because this is kind of some strange stuff we're going to listen to. So go to, let's go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 for a second. And, and remember, Moses is speaking to a specific audience in a specific time. Remember, the Bible is not written to us. It's written for us. It's written to a specific audience, and we have to, but in order for us to really get the word of God right, hermeneutically, as scholars would say, we have to understand the original context. We have to be good exegetes of the scripture. So I want to give you the background of where this comes from as we get into the story of Judah and Judah's capitulation with the culture. I want to go to Deuteronomy. I want to start in the fifth verse, if I may, just five verses, just by way of, of introduction, if I may. I'll wait for the pages to stop turning. If not, you can read it on the screen. If brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, then the wife of the one who died shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go in to untake her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it will be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he stands and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull off his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. You see a little of this in the book of Ruth too. This is called the Leverite marriage. We got to understand this before we get to um, chapter 38 here. According to Guzik, if a man died before providing sons to his wife, it was duty of his brothers to marry her and to give her sons. The child was considered the son of the brother who died because the living brother only acted as a proxy, so to speak, just in his place. This was done so the brother's name would be carried on. But also, as Guzik says, it's so the wind, so, so the widow would have children to support her. Again, from this, she would likely live the rest of her life as a destitute, destitute widow. So keep that in your watch pocket as we go on. And, and think about this. In remembering this morning about our hope, our expectancy in this Advent season, as CC reminded us, we must stay ahead of the curve, so to speak, not fall behind. Now, here's what I mean by this. We must stay ahead in our prayer life, in our studies of God's word, our church attendance. We will see Judah fall behind here. He literally will go down the wrong path. And we've all been there. We need to hear this story this morning, this biblical narrative. Again, there is, there's that Advent hope that we serve a living God in Christ because the Bible depicts that he is the God of hope. And let us keep that in mind this morning as we reflect on today's lesson. I've known many people that have skipped this chapter, but this chapter is important. And no one's exempt. Please hear this. Me first, you second. 
No one's exempt from going to places that we should not go. May God bless us this morning as we study his word. Let's go to the 38th division of Genesis. And I'll set the context. I just gave you a little background of what you're going to read here, because some of it may be a little different than what we're reading about, but that's why I gave you the Deuteronomy text, just for a kickoff to try to understand what's going on here. I want you to look at a couple of things. It's important to understand narrative and how the writers write it, especially because they don't, they're not reading, they're hearing. So you got to understand when, when people are hearing, you got to use what they call, a German word is called a light word, not like a light here, but like a light word. So there's words, and here you're going to hear a word like going down. And, and that's important um, as, as we read this. But Judah is going to escape. We've all been in a position of escapism, even in our mind. We live in a world of escapism. We live in a world where, you know, people do many, many things to escape. And, and I want you to keep that in your watch pocket, so to speak, as we look at this text this morning. And I want to start in the 38th division, the first verse. I want to read the first 11 verses. And please listen to the divine author as he um, infiltrates the text. Now, it happened at that time that Judah went down. There's a narrative hint. He went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and he went into her. And she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she named him Onan. And she still, and she bore still another son, and she named him Sheila, and it was at Chezeb that she bore him. That's important, what we just read. Just keep that again in your pocket. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, so Yahweh put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up a seed for your brother. And Onan knew that the seed would not be his. And it happened that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted, he wasted it on the ground in order not to give seed to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of Yahweh, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter, his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, I am afraid lest he also die like his brothers. There's the narrator telling you what's really on Judah's mind. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Remember, Jan? We did a play on this before. And I was Judah. As we start reading this text, we want to be careful to make judgments calls without considering what the text is trying to tell us. Believe it or not, we'll be encouraged by sermon's end. We will have hope at the end of the sermon. Again, all of us, one time or another, have run away from our problems and tend to forget about certain things that we've done wrong and block it out of our minds, so to speak. We've all been there. There are also times we condone what we have wrongly done by some self-righteous mindset that borders on insanity. We're all escape artists in one way or the other. 
you know, when I look at text, I, and I know there's a lot here, and, and we're going to take our time to go through because it's important. But when I look at text, when I look at biblical text, and I look at things and I say to myself, man, how can this be? I look at myself first. Because I would be no different than Judah. No different. And the divine author is giving us this for a reason of why Judah takes this turn to go down, leaving. I mean, we know what he left. We know the story. We're going to get into that. We know exactly what he's running away from. And escapism from the truth is condoned by the society we live in whether it's in a form of overly prescribed drugs or different forms of psychotherapy that are supposed to help us overcome our problems. The problem is sin. And there's no psychotherapy, nothing you can take. Our problem is sin. And we need a hope from that sin. And more times than not, all this stuff that the world has to offer, Charlie, all they are are diversionary tactics to forget about reality. That's the world. We want, the world wants us to live in an alternate reality. Judah here seems to be on a road of diversion trying to escape what happened to his brother Joseph. Now, some expatters, I don't know where they get this, they believe this is a disjointed text from the previous the connection is there. And but not only it's there, but it's necessary for us to understand the whole Joseph narrative. This is a very important part of the Joseph narrative. In fact, the connection, as Gunn says, is that Judah went down, just like Joseph went down. Now, that is a light word. Joseph went down, and he winds up in Egypt. Here, Judah went down, and he winds up deep in the heart of Canaan. You remember the the prophet Jonah, remember the light word went down? He went down first to the kind of the, uh, the, the hull of the boat. Before you know it, that went down, he goes down into the belly of a fish. So those light words in the Old Testament gene are really important. So when you see the word went down or descended, Judah descended to a point in his life that none of us want to go, but we've all been there. Again, it's a narrative hint that we want to, and if we, we look at, we line up scripture with scripture, we'll see when you see the divine author say that Judah went down or Joseph went down or Jonah went down, these are not good places to go. They're not good places to go. Joseph was taken down. These are narrative hints that connect the stories. Gunn states again, for Judah, a little distance may provide relief from his guilt. So now we remember how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and how all the brothers deceived their father in thinking that Joseph was murdered. I believe this weighed heavy on Judah's mind. I'm speculating here. And again, he had to get away. He had to run away from his sin. But thank God we can never outrun God. This is good stuff. This is what I need this. If you don't need it, I need it. Thank God we can never outrun God. In order to help us understand the Jewish mindset, I turn to a Jewish expositor named Greenberger, who is helpful in the cultural aspect, as well as some Hebrew words or some idioms that help us understand this. Again, Judah went down. He goes down after he experiences father, Jacob's emotional grief. The word here is descent. Again, he descends. Basically, Greenberger says he's descending into a dubious path. 
He's turning off the right track. Listen, man, I, listen, we've all been there again. Patty Wright, we've all turned off. We've all kind of, that's why the Bible says the road is what, Ashley? It's narrow. And we've all turned off. So I don't want to look at Judah. I know the first thing when we start reading about Judah, he is just a stoic, nothing. I mean, when you, when you get into the narrative about Judah, the first thing you might say, how can God use somebody like this? The question is to me first, how can God use somebody like me? Never mind Judah. But again, we want to keep that close to our breast, so to speak. And Judah befriends a certain man named Hira. Here we see Judah is accommodating himself to the culture. He marries an unnamed Canaanite woman whose father's name is Shua. Now, this is again, the Hebrew text is important. The first word in the Hebrew text is saw, which shows us this is more of a physical attraction as the verbs depict Judah sees, takes, and lies. Again, we want to be good readers of the text. There's a physical attraction. The first word in the Hebrew text is he saw. No love is mentioned. Greenberger depicts that this marriage appears to be one of convenience, a vehicle of integrating into the culture. Where loving someone in marriage is not important. This is an unfortunate choice for a new start. An unfortunate choice for a new start. We remember when Abraham prohibited Isaac from marrying a Canaanite, and also that Rebekah and Isaac were pained when he saw married a Canaanite woman. Please understand that Moses, again, is the author. He's speaking to a people who are wandering in the wilderness, who are capitulating with the culture and thinking they want to go back to Egypt. We got to understand narrative rightly. Understand the context is important. And we know that we are no different. There are many times we think about capitulating with the culture. In our own minds, in our own hearts, Veronica. So this is a message, a stark message to me first, Joe, and you second. Not Joe per se. But, but, but here, we got to understand Moses is writing to a people who want to go back to where they have garlic. Instead of being involved in the things of God. Judah capitulates with the culture. He becomes a product of his environment. He's not one that is separate from the culture, but he's conforming to the culture. Judah needs hope. Judah needs redemption. Like us. Like me. In fact, we live in a world today that churches are capitulating with the culture. We've become so much more culturized using pragmatic methods instead of theological mandates. For this, we must be careful. We're not a pragmatic church. We don't have no bells and whistles. We think the theological mandate is what is king. Now, as Matthews rightly says, this shows Judah at his worst. We've all been there. We all have a testimony. This story, like all redemption stories, will eventually give glory to God. For Sisi, he is the God of hope. In verses 3 and 5, we notice a couple of things. Now, think about Now, man, we got to be good readers. Notice this, Devon. Judah names only the first child. 
His unnamed, way, his unnamed wife names a second one, and Judah's not even around for the third child. She was in Chezeb when she bore him. He's not even there. You see the impersonal, this is the, again, we spoke about this in Bible study. This is the work of the enemy. This is impersonal. Imagine you having a son and you're not there to name him. He names the first son and doesn't worry about the second one. He's not even there when the third one is born. This is the line of Christ. This is where Jesus is going to come from, the line of Judah. Me and you are sinners, just like Judah, right? So here we see this picture of Judah, and the first thing I'm saying is, look at this. Three children, names one, doesn't care about the second one, and he's not even around for the third one. Good readers of the text, talk about grace. Praise God. This shows the indifference of this culture but we're not removed from this mindset today where there are too many parents who are more worried with their own life than the proper upbringing of their children. The Bible tells us that we should bring up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Here the gold is turned dim for Judah. Again, like Greenberger reminds us, now watch this, right? There's no mention of relationship, no interaction between Judah and his children, except for one, you'll see it in a second, or how they were raised, or his wife for that matter. What we're seeing here is an impersonal family where there's no dialogue, no discipline, no recognition, no substance. These relationships are void of love, void of interaction, void of hope, void of God. You don't think we live in that world today? You don't think we live in that world today, Cindy? Where no one has no conversations about anything about God. Let me encourage you for a minute. God will use these situations in Judah's life to bring him to a prominent position, not only in the Joseph narrative concerning his brothers, but also we know be the tribe of Judah that Christ would emerge. That's why these are not ethical stories. They are theological stories. They're God-ordained stories. Again, just like us, Judah is, an, a man, is a man in need of redemption. And thank God he does not leave us in our sinful state where the outcome will be death and hell. According to Hamilton, verse 6, we see we have read the custom of arranged marriages as Judah requires a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, and her name was Tamar. This, of course, is the catalyst to the whole story. Then in verse 7, we see the first time in the word, this is the first time in the word of God that God puts someone to death. Mark it down. First time God puts someone to death. And this type of evil that Ur commits is not mentioned, but Judah does not seem to care. He just goes on with his life. But there's a biblical doctrine here that must be observed, is that the Lord kills and makes alive. Here we see an act of God's sovereign judgment on Judah's firstborn. And then in verse 8, in accordance with the customs of the Leverite marriage, his brother-in-law of Tamar, Judah instructs Onan to have sexual relationships with his deceased brother's widow. And as we mentioned in our opening text, it is here that Onan did not want to carry on his brother's name, whether it's symbol, a sibling rivalry is hard to tell, but it's disobedience. 
I mean, Judah's gone from bad to worse. He escaped his other family because of what they had all done to Joseph. But as we see here, the grass is not too much greener on the other side. In fact, Onan, Judah's second son. Now, the words are different in the Hebrew. This is interesting. Judah's second son is described differently than his brother. Onan's behavior was wicked. Verse 9, it describes his motive for not carrying on the offspring of his brother. The word conveys a harmful evil, a de deliberate evil, de deliberate wickedness. It's like taking the law into one's own hand. This is basically like standing in the stead of God. This is what we see today in the world. We live in a world where anyone or any country puts themselves in the stead of God or his laws is blatant idolatry, blatant wickedness. And the sentence is death. It will be. This is a deliberate brazen act against God. Yes, Ur was wicked, but here Onan is intentionally wicked. He has no regard for God. In turn, God has no regard for him. The Bible says God killed him. Verse 10. Anyone in this world, hear this. This is important. Anyone in this world that has no regard for God will pay this same death blow the Bible says, even though they knew God, they did not glorify him or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. In fact, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is the case of Onan. He was a deliberate sinner against the holy God and God gave him over to his dishonorable passions. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. But the sad part about this is Judah. He capitulates with the culture where lying would see commonplace. He tells Tamar, now listen. So he sees this going on. He tells Tamar, listen, go live. Go live away. As soon as my other son grows up, I'll give him to you in marriage. And we'll keep the name going. But the divine author, Raoul, tells us differently. The divine author says that Judah had no intentions of giving his youngest son to Tamar. No intentions. Now, we know the backstory. Do you understand? Now, obviously, Judah don't know this, but I want you to think about the ramifications as we just kind of look at it from our vantage point of what we know. Think about what Judah's doing. This is the line, Jan, that Christ is going to come from. We know we did the play. This is the line that Christ is going to come from. First of all, look at the line. Look at the progenitor of the line. He's a deceiver. He's a lie. He's running away. He sold his brother into slavery. I mean, lied to his father about his brother Joseph. Runs away from his problems. Ain't even there when his son is born or to, to give him a name. I mean, this is, I mean, wait a minute. The encouragement is, man, if you're a sinner like Judah, like me, there's room at the foot of the cross. I mean, there's so much here. This is the line that Christ, and now what he's trying to do, he doesn't know this, Ashley. He doesn't know this, Rachel. But what he's doing is he is trying to actually cut the cord to where Christ is going to come. Pastor Dominic Romaldi here. This is Street Talk Theology, and where we take theology and bring it to the streets. Hope to see you next time for the second part of Judah and Tamar. Thank you for joining us for Street Talk Theology with Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. 
you can visit Pastor Dom at Desert Sky Baptist Church at 891 West Corson Road, Casa Grande. And for more information, visit us online at www.desertskybaptist.org. Thank you.